Welcome to the Grumpy Economist podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Grumpy Economist is John Cochran, the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. And John, uh, we can probably just go home. Nothing much to talk about this week. Um, <laughs> we all are home. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's a very good point. Um, so actually, we are returning ahead of schedule because last week we were talking prospectively about how economic policy could be used to mitigate some of the effects that the coronavirus is having on the economy. And now we're starting to see actual policy responses take shape. So let's start here. You've been writing about this both at the Grumpy Economist blog and in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, the point that you've made on several occasions, this is different than most economic crises in that the the proximate cause is the virus and the public health response to it, not really the economic fundamentals. If we wanted to be fancy, we'd say it's an exogenous factor. Uh, But that has implications for policy because what we're actually trying to do here is to sort of cryogenically freeze big parts of the economy so that we can thaw them out when the worst of this is over. You don't want otherwise healthy businesses to go under and otherwise employable people to lose their jobs in the interim. So if that's the goal, what does that suggest about the way that policy needs to work? Yeah, I'm I'm glad uh, you phrased it beautifully. Uh, It is quite different from the financial crisis, the last recession. Um, So that immediately tells you uh, things that aren't good ideas. Um, The idea that we need stimulus, people need to go out and spend to keep the economy going, Uh, whether or not, we can debate whether or not that made sense last time, but that clearly is not what you want. And right now our government wants people not to go out and spend because they would spread the virus by doing so. Uh, So um, you phrased it again beautifully. uh, How do you cryogenically freeze um, a economy. An economy is, I think, a good metaphor. It's like a human body. Uh, you can't just turn it off and turn it back on again. Uh, some of us are fortunate enough to just go home and work from home and have enough savings to do that, but the economy as a whole doesn't. Uh, in particular, uh, lots of people have debts to pay, uh, and those the debt clock doesn't stop. Um, so businesses can fail. Uh, even perfectly he- healthy businesses can fail. Uh, people can not be able to pay their rent and their mortgages and so forth. Uh, and so you'd like to not have that. We all understand this is an exogenous, a supply shock. Uh, it's not your fault that you can't pay your mortgage. Um, there might be a little bit of your fault in the corporate side that has chosen to take on an enormous amount of debt and not have uh, cash resources to get through a crisis of some sort. Um, but this particular event uh, is, is at least much less anybody's fault. So you want to um, uh, kind of suspend the rules for a little while and make sure that the economy is ready to turn back on, that the normal processes of, of forcing companies to shut down and firing people don't really apply right now. Uh, so that's the goal um, of the economic response. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll shut up and you can, we can explore uh, what parts, how to achieve that goal. Well, I want to pick up on the point that you just made, especially regarding corporate debt. So good economists always worry about moral hazard. The idea that when you protect someone from risk, you create the prospect that because they're insulated from the full consequences of their actions, they may actually engage in more risky behavior than they otherwise would. Here's what you said about this at the Grumpy Economist recently. This is a quote. The only reason the economy is in trouble is that not enough people and businesses kept cash reserves or plans to weather a shutdown. If the ants bail out the grasshoppers without consequences, we will enter the next crisis 
with nothing but grasshoppers. Close quote. And John, that is that is sober. It is farsighted, and it is exactly the kind of thing that a lot of politicians and probably a goodly chunk of the public don't want to be bothered with right now. So, give us a sense of how we could avoid that danger while still being responsive to these calls for urgent action. And it is it is difficult. I mean, I, I can afford to say that because I'm an academic, and uh, uh, I don't I don't have to stand for election. And many of uh, my commenters on Twitter are, you know, they immediately jump to, how could you worry about moral hazard? We're in a crisis. People are hurting. Don't worry about moral hazard. And there's sort of a, at the end of times, you don't worry about moral hazard because there won't be a next time. Uh, But in fact, um, I think one way to put it, this is a relatively mild pandemic. Uh, We are in, I think what future historians will look back and see the earliest 20th century as an era of many pandemics. Um, one is out there that is uh, more insidious, that kills 20% of the people who get it and takes a month to manifest itself and uh, uh, is, is even more resistant to our public health efforts. Um, so uh, I, I think as we do what we do now, we should think about moral hazard and not just solve the immediate crisis, but what precedents are we setting? Uh, how are we going to solve pandemics in general? Um, academics, uh, my fellow blog, me and my fellow bloggers are full of wonderful creative ideas uh, that we won't have time to even start thinking about all these great creative ideas for solving it. Um, our bureaucracies have no hope of putting those ideas into practice in the three days that, it, <laughs> that are needed right now. Um, but thinking about those ideas, I think, is, is important. I think this is a good time to think about, well, what are we going to do next time around? So you bring me to moral hazard. Um, the impulse right now is to bail out uh, everybody who needs money, starting with the airlines. Uh, the airlines are, have, however, loaded up on debt in the last uh, number of years, in part because our government subsidizes debt. You get to deduct tech debt payments from your corporate taxes, for example, and there's a good chance of getting bailed out uh, if you get in trouble. So airlines are now too big to fail. Um, so if we just bail them out, then what incentive does the airline have in the next four or five years not to load right back up on debt again? Uh, it's it's much like the lesson we learned of the big banks in 2008 that had loaded up massively on debt. So we bailed them out, and then we said, okay, guys, uh, but you got to have a lot more capital. The the uh, um, the courage of that conviction waned. <laughs> Even the big banks are uh, are more loaded up on debt, but at least the principle we understood. And I think that's um, so a principle that leads me to uh, lending, in fact, uh, as opposed to gifts, is uh, there's a number of principles. I, I think so if there's one policy I would encourage, it's the government to step in and lend as opposed to simply hand out gifts. Because uh, that helps to uh, that helps to stop this moral hazard problem. Uh, all of us will stand will stand up and say, "Give me a handout." But if it's a loan that has to be repaid, people who really need it are more likely to. Uh, so that that saves the government's ammunition. And I think it helps to reduce the moral hazard. Um, I think people and businesses will start thinking, hey, maybe I, I need to keep a couple rolls of toilet paper around all the time and not just uh, <laughs> in advance of the crisis. Uh, maybe I should keep some cash reserves around all the time. Uh, the big tech companies who are sitting on mountains of cash all of a sudden look wise because <laughs> uh, they're doing fine. Let's talk about the policy response on the individual side, because the last time that you and I talked about this, the policy response du jour was a payroll tax cut. That was what the Trump administration was pushing at the time. 
in the interim, we have transitioned to just straight injections of cash. I mean, this is being negotiated while we're recording, so we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But the proposal we keep hearing is something on the order of like $1,000 per person. And there are debates about whether you means test that, what's the most efficient delivery mechanism look like. But top line, John, how do you react to that? If John Cochran is a member of Congress right now, is he voting for that approach? And if not, what's he looking towards as an alternative? Um, well, we got to do something, and I don't want to be so. Obviously, I don't like that idea, <laughs> but I also don't want to be too critical. Um, uh, the, the crime is that our government entered this with no planning whatsoever. Um, the economic planning, the stress testers who worried about everything, the world never even thought about pandemic. Um, there were actually government pandemic economic plans. Nice, I looked them up. They're nice little reports. People put them on the shelves and never looked at them again. Uh, so uh, clearly what we're going to do is going to be very rough and ready. Um, and and, uh, and they got to do something. And uh, so, so with that said, though, uh, the idea of sending everybody $1,000 um, seems to me not to... Uh, th that's a stimulus idea, and they call it a stimulus. Well, we don't need stimulus. Um, what we need is to make sure people have enough to... Uh, pay pay for their food uh, while and uh, while they're sitting at home, but um, also to uh, not um, to not to to be able to pay their debts uh, to the extent that debts are going to get collected right now. So we we don't want people to lose their houses and to uh, be you know to be foreclosed on, evicted, um, be go through personal bankruptcy. Uh, right now, now it would be better if they, if we all had a lot less individual debt too. But again, this is a this is a time for forbearance on that. Now, if the problem is people's debts and their bills, you know, a thousand, uh, e even it's hard to have have sympathy for rich people. But rich people have larger debts, <laughs> and when the rich people default on their loans, that's just as much of a problem for the bank as as when the poor people default on their loans. Uh, so I, I proposed um, I called it stimulant instead of stimulus. Uh, you could borrow against your future taxes um, and uh, then pay it back. Uh, that puts a little onus. Uh, only take it if you need it. You and me would not take the uh, $1,000 uh, or $10,000 or $50,000. Um, uh, those who need it to stave off bankruptcy would, would take it. So I think that's, a uh, again, lending rather than gifts is, is a better approach and more tailored to the problem at hand. So federal resources are not infinite. A trillion bucks here and a trillion bucks there, and pretty soon you're talking real money. Uh, there is a national debt. It will be paid off eventually by taxes. Um, so, uh, And I want to preserve some fiscal space for the U.S. government. Uh, the time is coming when we have a bigger pandemic and a war and a big recession and our government says now we need to borrow five trillion dollars and the markets say you got to be kidding uh and then they just the crisis the crisis is enormous the, the firehouse has burned down so paying a little bit of attention to the federal budget uh and to using that money wisely i think would be uh, useful and then again lending that you collect and that people pay back doesn't really cost the government that much John, as of yesterday, the president announced that he is invoking something called the Defense Production Act, which gives the government the authority to direct production in private industries in a time of crisis. Now, I should underscore, they're doing this preemptively. The administration wants this in place if they need to use it. They're not applying this right now. Uh, but 
how does a, a pretty libertarian guy like yourself think about this prospect of government commanding production? Is this a situation where the exigencies mean you just kind of have to throw out the rule book and accept some of the attendant inefficiencies? Or is it still better to kind of sit back and wait to see what kind of innovation comes out of the private sector, even though you don't know the course it's necessarily going to take? So um, let me answer the general question and then and then the specific one. Um, Times of crisis like this are uh, even to, to a constitutional rule of law conservative libertarian. Uh, they are times when governments do unusual things, and there's a free market um, reason for that. Um, our contracts don't specify every possible contingency, and so in unusual circumstances that contracts couldn't uh, or didn't um, foresee. The government kind of steps in and rough and ready does ex post what should have been done ex ante. Uh, so the government, you know, hands money around in a way that insurance contracts would have done if people had signed them. Not very well, but uh, that's kind of what government does. So, so there is a, a role for government doing some unusual things. Um, it's important we understand those are limited to an unusual contingency, that we don't make a habit of it. Uh, all sorts of civil liberties get stamped on in a uh, in a pandemic. You're not allowed to go outside, even though you want to. That's the sort of thing that would be intolerable in normal times because it can be misused for political purposes. Uh, but you know, in in exemptions, so we, we allow that. Civil libertarians, civil libertarians, and 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 liber libertarians uh, see the need for a, a a government in times of of stress. Now, the the Defense Procurement Act. Um, I always like to say before you start pushing policy levers, let's see how you're, let's try getting out of the way. Um, so why do we not have enough N95 masks around? Well, we put in <laughs> tariffs against importing them from China. That wasn't a terribly smart idea. Uh, there's a lot, it, the testing was illegal for a long time. Hospitals weren't allowed to use private tests. I just saw an interesting tweet from a guy who uh, wanted to produce masks and went to, I forget which government agency has to sign it off, and they said that'll be 45 days so we can inspect your facility and so forth. It's not obvious that, that the free market is not supplying, is not doing everything in its human power to supply more, uh, in, more N95 uh, masks and respirators and, and stuff like that. And there is a danger, there's a general danger in times of emergency. The government seems to love to put in price controls, no profiteering. Well, if you put in price, if, if everyone knows you're going to put in price controls, then, then first, there's no profit motive to start stockpiling things ahead of time. And second, that's why people run to the store to go empty out the shelves, because they know they won't be able to get it ex post. Um, so it's not, in this particular case, it's not clear that we needed to uh, have the federal government call people who are in the business of making uh, masks and respirators and say, hey, guys, get out of bed, stop watching videos, uh, get to work. They, they were working pretty darn hard already. Um, and, and, and I think an, an eye towards how are we in the way might have helped. But in general, this is, you know, if, if there is such a case, um, you know, the, when, when you're in a public health crisis, you do what you got to do. So the final question that I'll put to you, this is how you ended your recent piece in the Wall Street Journal. Again, I'm quoting you here. 
Changing micro rules and regulations is much harder than macro stimulus. Thousands of rules need to bend to help thousands of businesses and millions of people. It would all be easier if there were a pandemic economic and financial plan in place. Sadly, 12 years of stress tests and economic crisis planning never considered the possibility of a pandemic. Let us get a better economic plan in place for the next one, close quote. So I realize I'm asking you a huge question with only a few minutes left, and that it's going to take a long time to fully flesh this out. But broadly speaking, what does a better plan for the future look like? How do we make ourselves more resilient for threats like these? Well, there's all these, uh, as you can see, um, everyone's full of ideas of, oh, let people get unemployment insurance without actually having to lose their jobs and so forth. There's all, there's, there's special rules that need to let people borrow money who don't have any income because we all know it's because of a pandemic. They don't have any income. Let them borrow against their tax. We've got thousands of these clever ideas, each of which requires rewriting a lot of rules and, and just can't really happen in, in real time. So um, thinking these things through, that's the lesson of all emergency planning. You know, in 2001, the fire department and the police department didn't know each other's phone numbers. So we put together a terrorism plan where they learned each other's phone numbers and we practiced it. Uh, I mentioned all those sort of special cases in contracts and, and in, in regulations that, oh, but in the case of a pandemic, you can break all sorts of rules that normally would lead to all sorts of uh, bad consequences. Uh, thinking that through, stuff through, and having ready in the break glass in case of emergency would be useful. I'm also uh, a little concerned. So the um, at, we're going to have more pandemics, and, and they will probably be worse sooner or later. Um, and I think it is worth considering just uh, how much economic damage is worth how much health damage uh, people I, I, shutting the economy. If we have to shut the U.S. economy down for six whole months and bankrupt half of the companies in here, um, is that the right answer to coronavirus? So I've tried to keep public health policy and economic policy separate. I'm just an economist. I don't talk about how you stop viruses, but they are starting to merge into each other. Uh, and um, the, the costs and benefits of various of approaches to 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 because uh, because we're doing we're shutting down the economy in order to stem uh, the virus. Uh, so a better, a more prepared public health response would certainly save us a lot of these economic costs. You've been listening to the Grumpy Economist podcast with John Cochran. You can read the Grumpy Economist blog at johnhcochran.blogspot.com. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For John Cochran, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.